welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Susie Dennison and I'm the Director of the European Power Programme at the European Council on Foreign Relations. This week I'm standing in for Mark Leonard, who's on leave, and we're going to be discussing how Europe can rebuild multilateralism after COVID-19. And it's an all-star ECFR cast today, as I'm very happy to welcome Anthony Dworkin, our Research Director and Senior Policy Fellow, who's just published a new policy brief on the topic, as well as our Asia Director, Janka Ertel, who follows the engagement of Asian powers in the multilateral system very closely, as well as the transatlantic dimension. So thank you both very much for joining us. So the corona pandemic has highlighted both the interdependence of today's world and the obstacles to international cooperation. Anthony, in your paper published last week, you argue that Europe is well positioned to set the frameworks through which the world deals with these transnational challenges, such as the corona pandemic. So why do you think that Europe needs an updated strategy for multilateralism and how and what should, what should such a strategy look like in today's world? Thanks, Susie. And it's a pleasure to be on the podcast um, again. So, yes, I mean, the EU is traditionally, you know, among the greatest supporters of multilateralism. European countries really rely on a, a kind of rules-based order. It's in their nature to operate in that way, and they rely on it for their prosperity and their security. And I think what the coronavirus has shown us is that, um, you know, even in health, um, it's really important to have international cooperation to secure the well-being of people at home. In fact, I think in the aftermath of the of the virus, we see this kind of new agenda um, coming up, the you know coming rising in priority of of international issues, health, climate, economic recovery in the post-pandemic period, and these are all issues where international cooperation is really vital for European interests. But it is a particularly complicated environment to pursue international cooperation. And that's another lesson um, that COVID has shown us. So a traditional European approach to multilateralism would be what I call in the paper, a kind of consensual approach based on the idea of let's get all the world's powers together and surely we can agree on some sensible incremental reforms to improve international institutions and um, expand the rules-based system. But we're in an international environment where um, great powers are pursuing conflicting and very competitive agendas, uh, trying to bend the international rules to suit their own interests, um, which they see as opposed to the interests of other powers, um, there's a kind of battle going on to set the rules. And in that context, um, some of these institutions and issues, um, whether it's uh, around health or around trade or technology, um, have become sites of competition. And so yeah. the challenge, I think, for Europe is to try and find a way to deal with that. And in my paper, I outline what I call a twin track strategy that Europe needs to try and preserve these kinds of global channels and institutions because we really need to try and coordinate as best we can among you know, all the big powers out there on some of these issues, but that that's going to involve 
compromises, limits, um, because there are just such differences in how we see these issues. And yeah. so alongside that, Europe needs to look for ways to cooperate more deeply with like-minded powers. And that that's where a lot of the real progress and kind of tangible advances are likely to be found. Thanks a lot, Anthony. So, Janka, um, as Anthony says, Europe's obviously not the only player to be thinking about its engagement in the international system. Um, the Biden administration has a clear agenda to re-engage and to, to retake the mantle as um, of um, being shaper-in-chief, if you like, of the international system. And China has shown through COVID that it has a vision of a, a less Western-dominated system in mind. So what should Europeans expect from these other players in reaction to the sort of strategy that Anthony's outlining? Thank you, first of all, also for having me, Sue. It's a great pleasure. So what we are seeing, particularly with a view to China, is that the pandemic has given China basically like a confidence boost uh, in the international system. Um, and you can see the Chinese government kind of betraying itself as a champion of multilateralism, as a champion of kind of upholding the international order, but increasingly also really pursuing its interests more forcefully. So multilateralism, yes, but very much serving Chinese interests. And we are seeing that particularly around the controversy of the WHO and the um, kind of investigations that are going on around the origins of the pandemic, that the times of kind of cooperation within international organizations and China as a partner in this context are really over. Um, China is about to lead or wants to lead um, these institutions or wants to lead processes within these institutions. And it's using that from health to climate and other areas, sustainable finance um, in multilateral fora. This can be an advantage um, for pursuing European interests whenever they intersect. But it is becoming more rare that European and Chinese interests are actually aligned on these issues. So um, for China... This is all kind of part of this comprehensive system competition that is playing out on all fields. And this is kind of multilateral um, arenas are one of the areas in which the system competition with the United States, particularly, but with the United States and Europe more broadly, is playing out. Nothing in these areas can be particularly partitioned off any longer from the Chinese perspective. So we just need to incorporate that in our thinking um, when we, together with the United States or Europe separately, are thinking through multilateral solutions that the certain degree of naivete um, is no longer applicable here when it comes to, well, we can be com competitors here, we can be rivals there, but we can totally be partners on certain issues, including climate or health. Um, that is no longer within the logic um, of the Chinese government around these issues. Thanks, Yanka. So, Anthony, Yanka's um, Yanka's talked about um, uh, naivety in, in in terms of approaches here. One of the other themes that you and, and colleagues have been exploring in depth recently is is that of European sovereignty. Um, do you think it's um, naive to believe that um, uh, that Europe can pursue sort of can ride both horses, can build European sovereignty um, at the same time as, um, as as shaping a multilateral agenda that delivers on global goods? Or do you see tensions there? There are, there are definitely tensions there. I wouldn't deny that. And I think this sovereignty agenda that um, ECFR, among others, has looked at quite a lot is really a response to the kind of environment that Yanka is describing, um, one in which increasingly great powers, um, both the United States to a degree under Trump um, and China very clearly, 
are using kind of international interconnections um, as a way of pursuing their own agendas. And so the EU is much more conscious now that it needs to be aware of the kind of role of great power politics and um, very alert to defending its interests within this system. And I think, you know, if you had a vision of what that entailed, that was kind of um, essentially a Trumpian type vision, um, where you really see um, a kind of contrast, a, a, a kind of complete um, incompatibility between cooperation and between your own interests, then I think you would have to choose. But I think Europeans don't want to go down that path. They do see if they look across these areas, uh, health, climate, trade, international economics, technology, really that it's important to try and shape an international system that reflects Europe's values. So in a sense, Europe can go out and kind of pursue its sovereignty agenda internationally through the multilateral system. But to do that, I think it does need to be very alert to the kinds of challenges that Yanka talked about, um, thinking about where it can cooperate with who, what kind of uh, frameworks are going to work for what kind of issues. And I think it has to be prepared to defend itself when these multilateral frameworks break down. And this is also something that Yanka and other colleagues have looked at, building up Europe's ability to resist coercion. So I think the two are compatible, but it requires a sense of multilateralism that also serves Europe's interests and a sense of defending Europe in a competitive environment. So yeah. as we've seen on some issues, there are complications, but I think there still is a way to combine these two agendas. Well, let's dig in now to some of the thematic areas that your paper explores. Um, and let's start with health. So we've seen over recent weeks just how tense it can get when domestic political interests and the goal of um, delivering global goods, um, in this case, um, uh, high coverage of, of vaccination, um, clash. Um, with the EU uh, coming under really heavy fire for a vaccine rollout in which it's chosen to, or it, it's decided um, to, to export around 60% of the vaccines produced in the EU. China does similarly, but the US and the UK keep 100% for faster rollouts at home. So, Anthony, I mean, I think this comes directly to the point that you're raising about sort of how to find the balance between um, these different goals. Do you think that Europeans should be investing in the global distribution of vaccines um, if, if we're not even managing to vaccinate, vaccinate people at home within the EU? Um, or do you think that there are, there are different choices that could have been made here? Well, there's no doubt that the vaccine question is one that brings this difficulty or this complication of balancing between the responsibility that governments feel to their own populations and their commitment to uh, equitable international solution, it really brings that um, to the fore. And I think I'm slightly resistant It is to, the, to this way of saying Europe has been a, a good multilateralist because it exports vaccines, whereas the US um, and the UK don't. Um, I think that's there's, there's some truth in that in as much as companies based in Europe have been exporting vaccines. 
Um, but really, the situation is a bit more complicated because essentially the EU pursued a very different approach to procuring vaccines. Um, it pursued this kind of arm's length um, contractual negotiations with the companies, uh, whereas the US and the UK got much more involved in a sort of venture capital approach um, in scaling up production and working much more closely with the companies. Um, so I think if you take a, you know, a broader view, um, what we see is an environment where increasingly there are pressures on all countries um, in the rich world to look after their own populations. And we see the EU now implementing various forms of um, export restriction. Um, it's not clear how much they'll actually use that, but they're clearly moving in that direction in an attempt to allay domestic concerns. And we're in a situation where the poorer countries in the world are facing a, a long wait. So um, I think really it's not an ideal solution. Um, there are mechanisms set up to distribute vaccines, but they're having trouble getting enough vaccines to distribute. So here I think we've got the balance a little bit wrong and I would be in favour of adjusting right. it. Because we're starting to see some member states exploring procurement um, opportunities um, with non-European partners outside the EU framework. I mean, do you, do you think there will be consequences for um, support uh, among EU member states for, for broader multilateral comp uh, cooperation? Do you think there's a risk of this issue sort of bleeding out into the broader multilateralism agenda? I do think that there has been uh, the reasons why Europe has got into the situation it has are very long and complicated. They go to the model it's pursued. They go to um, preparedness within the countries. But I think there is no doubt that one impact of this whole series of events is that there will be a kind of loss of faith among European publics both in the EU as a whole, in terms of its ability to handle this kind of issue, and perhaps in the notion that um, European countries who have remained very wealthy and well supplied with vaccines compa compared to the rest of the world, that they can manage their interests while still contributing meaningfully to um, deal with problems around the rest of the world. So I think it is accentuating this sense of a tension between domestic and international issues in an unhelpful way. And I hope that quickly we can move on to a phase of trying to think more constructively about how to bring those agendas together. So, so Yenka, China's vaccine diplomacy has obviously drawn a lot of attention. Um, do you do you see this as, as as being successful? Do you think it's going to have a long term effect in terms of securing China a more influential role in the parts of the developing and developed world in which it's investing at the moment, and, and indeed in kind of shaping um, the um, the the rules of the game in the international system, as Anthony's talked about after COVID? I would say right now we would say it remains to be seen. 
but the current results are at, at best mixed, I would say. Um, China has not necessarily benefited from the position in, in, uh, in its kind of in the, in the vaccine process at the moment. It has exported more than 100 million vaccine doses and was expecting this to be kind of part of a broader diplomatic effort as it had in the mask diplomacy that had pursued in the earlier days of the crisis. Um, but there are doubts, particularly over the effectiveness of the Chinese vaccine, as um, there were also doubts about kind of the quality of Chinese mask products of some of these and, and testing uh, equipment that was exported. And this is kind of having an effect on how Chinese products are being seen when they're being exported. There is a lack of transparency when it comes to the data um, that is used for kind of um, measuring the effectiveness of the vaccines. And as this is a pretty sensitive area where you know, states cannot really afford to vaccinate the population with a vaccine that is then in the end not effective. Um, so even among the Beijing-friendly countries, so, so to say, in Central Asia, Southeast Asia, there is really lingering doubts in how to deal with it. And, and the results that we're seeing so far are not so great when it comes to, to the rollout so far. China is also um, using vaccine diplomacy at the moment for clear political gains from preferential access to its own country for business uh, travel when using Chinese vaccines. Or there are even accusations of um, China offering vaccines to Paraguay, for example, as an exchange for cutting diplomatic ties with Taiwan to feed into kind of an old logic um, of old priority of Chinese foreign policy making. So overall, we could say that China has not really used the um, neither the COVID uh, pandemic as such, nor um, the the now the vaccine rollout to really score diplomatic gains. It has um, approached the entire process um, a bit haphazardly and not very strategically. Um, it has approached it from its own interest, not very um, long-term thinking and what the effect in other countries will be. So overall, in the publics, uh, China has not really benefited from a moment um, that could have been a moment of opportunity of really presenting itself as the multilateral player, as the responsible stakeholder that is kind of upholding certain values during a time of global need um, that hasn't worked out so far. Okay, so the the health dimension of the response, um, as, as you've been allu- alluding to, Yanka, is obviously only um, you know, the central dimension of the global recovery, but there's also the small matter of the economic perspective. Um, Anthony, at a multilateral level, what's already happened um, uh, to, to support the global economic recovery? Well, there has been some some efforts have been made, um, and a lot of the attention is focused on global debt because there was already a problem of indebtedness before the pandemic, and that's been significantly worsened by the effect of poor countries having to really increase their spending substantially on health and, of course, being hit by the global economic downturn that the pandemic has caused. So the against an already serious picture of indebtedness, the poor countries are going to have to spend hundreds of billions of dollars more um, looking after the health of their population and, and meeting social needs. So one of the steps that's been taken is uh, suspension of debt through the G20. Um, and that's now just been extended to the end of this year. Uh, so 
um, dozens of countries are being given this kind of moratorium on debt repayments. And that's good, but that is only, as some campaigners are saying, a small step, a drop in the bucket. And what's now being discussed, and I think will happen, is um, to give an extra injection of liquidity of capital to these countries um, through the IMF issuing what are called special drawing rights, which is a kind of reserve asset that would be a way of funneling some extra funding to them. So it now looks like that'll happen as well. So there are steps that are being taken. Um, but there's still some lingering questions, both about whether the richer countries are going to reallocate their special drawing rights that they would get to more needy countries, um, and also some questions about how Chinese banks and um, Chinese creditors are going to, how far they're going to be involved and play along in any kind of transparent way with these efforts to restructure, um, potentially to restructure debts, because China increasingly is holding a big part of the of the debts of the developing world. Okay, and um, what uh, Yanka, just to come to you briefly on this point, um, uh, do you expect uh, um, Chinese um, companies and institutions to play ball on this? Um, and and do you think that this will amount to um, enough in terms of the the global effort on the recovery? It remains to be seen. We see some um, initial positive results from the from the Chinese side, and kind of signing on to the G twenty statement, um, in, in being willing to uh, bring its own players on board. But the issue of Chinese debt in the developing world is a very multi layered one. We have a number of ex actors present here, and I think Anthony has already alluded to it. The question of transparency: where exactly are is the debt uh, located at the moment? Who exactly is the creditor? Um, who is going to be part of the process who's not going to be part of the process um, is going to be a lot more complex. For China, this is a completely different situation this time around. Kind of if we compare this with the role during the global financial crisis, where China was kind of the savior um, in, in large extent um, in providing capital and providing investment and in just being kind of um, playing along with, uh, with, the, with the recovery processes as well. This is a different new kind of crisis um, where China is now a major creditor. Um, which is now a major economic force. So it's a bit of a different role where also the Chinese government has to kind of see how it aligns its own economic recovery with global goals. Okay, interesting to watch then. So um, I want to turn briefly um, uh, before we close to, to the question of climate. Um, Anthony's paper talks about uh, preparedness as the next challenge for the EU on the multilateralism front. Um, the TCFRR polling data across EU countries over the past year has shown that climate hasn't been replaced by health in the urgency that the public place on, um, on this as the, the next crisis. Um, Greta Thunberg herself has argued that the COVID response shows that climate has never really been treated as a crisis, as if it had been, it, there would have been a very different response mobilised. And even Bill Gates, who's perhaps most closely associated with mobilising a response on the health crisis, has released a book this year on how to avoid a climate disaster. So um, I'm interested to hear your sense from, from the different perspectives on, on how, how different actors are squaring up to this and preparing for the climate crisis um, and multilateral engagement on it. Yanka, do you want to take this one first? Sure, happy to, Susie. So I think what we've seen is uh, in, in late 2020, during the General Assembly, 
um, Chinese President Xi Jinping stepping up to the plate and making a very ambitious announcement of China decarbonizing um, by 2016, peak carbon by before 2030. Um, this was a major announcement at a time where everyone was thinking about the pandemic, where every, every government's head was around the pandemic. To make that statement in that forum was quite unexpected, not only to um, the international audience, but also to the home audience in that regard. Um, the Chinese government is putting a lot of emphasis on the um, kind of economic aspect and technology aspect also of the transformation of the economic transformation um, that has to go in hand in hand with, uh, with a more ambitious um, decarbonization agenda. But I think what is interesting at this stage is that the multilateral dimension of this is becoming smaller. Um, we're looking at areas like sustainable finance, taxonomy there that are still um, relevant here, but that the domestic dimension is actually growing bigger. So um, for, uh, for I think for European observers, it is important to kind of recalibrate um, the efforts, the political efforts around kind of bilateral coordination, domestic transformation, uh, and the multilateral dimension around this. China will go about this uh, unilaterally, domestically, the decarbonization process is going to start at some point. Um, right now, there's still some reluctance, and this is where multilateral pressure can help, um, kind of help move along. But this is already attached to Xi Jinping personally. So now it's about kind of mobilizing the local politicians, mobilizing local authorities, and getting that bigger transformation process going. That's the the big challenge here. That's not necessarily the challenge on the multilateral level. Thanks a lot, Yanka. Um, and Anthony, um, what's what's your sense um, of um, the European response on this? Well, I think this is exactly as Yanka says. Uh, uh, you can see very clearly how climate is a kind of arena of competition and the EU and the US and China are sort of looking at each other in this rather competitive way um, in terms of the economic transition towards uh, green economies and some of the kinds of resources and technologies that are going to be involved. Uh, and yet, at the same time, looking for these sort of small ways in which there may still be some benefit in coordinating their efforts with each other. Um, but for the EU, I think the main effort is going to be this question of carbon border adjustment mechanisms, carbon border taxes so that uh, goods coming into the EU would have in some way the kind of, um, if they're not produced in a sustainable way, that that would then uh, be taxed so that the, you weren't getting what they call carbon leakage, whereby the EU was putting stringent requirements at home and goods coming in could be produced in a, a more carbon intensive way. Um, but that, of course, is uh, both a big geopolitical question in terms of its relations with other powers, and also a question of how that can be coordinated. So this could, I think, be a, a real avenue for the sort of narrower, like-minded cooperation that I spoke about. Um, various scholars have explored the idea of some sort of climate club whereby countries could join together to implement um, compatible carbon pricing mechanisms and then they would be part of a kind of zone uh, extended uh, carbon border um, adjustment mechanism would cover all of them so but that would have to be done quite carefully i think so that it didn't conflict with the broader multilateral framework of trade around the world trade organization 
So uh, a complicated dance, but I think that is the way that the EU will will try to go, um, simply so that it doesn't its producers don't lose out at home by implementing um, you know a, a sustainable transition. And obviously, um, uh, that's a file to watch because the Commission's expected to come out, um, I think, uh, in May with its proposal on exactly what um, the, the CBAM will look like. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, for avid Commission watchers, that's coming soon. Um, so we've only got uh, one thing left to do in this pod- podcast, which is our bookshelf section. And I'm obviously going to recommend Anthony's paper, Built to Order, How Europe Can Rebuild Multilateralism After COVID-19, available on the ECFR website. Um, but I'm also going to re- recommend the novel that I'm reading at the moment, um, because it's very pertinent to the conversation we've been having. Um, I'm reading Summer by Ali Smith. It's the fourth in a quartet that she's written about post-Brexit Britain. But since it was written in in 2020, sorry, um, uh, it also explores life under COVID and how it's changing the outlook of the generation currently in full-time education who've perhaps been hardest hit by by the health crisis that we've been talking about. Um, Yanka, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Uh, yeah, so I would like to recommend um, a newspaper article this time around um, because things are moving very quickly at the moment. Um, and I think it's very, uh, it's very good to look closer into what is actually happening in terms of cooperation between Europe and China at the moment. Green investment standards are here on the top of the agenda. So I would like to emphasize a pretty good Financial Times piece that was yesterday by Selena Lee and Robin Yu uh, called China Reveals Cooperation with EU on Green Investment Standards that gives a good overview uh, on where we stand um, on this particular important issue as we are currently trying to dig and find um, areas where cooperation is still possible. This could be one. Great. Always good to have concise recommendations. Anthony, what are you reading at the moment? Well, like you, I've been reading a novel and it's not a very concise one because it's a <laughs> great classic. Um, Bleak House by Charles Dickens is my lockdown reading, which I've oh. been reading for a while and will be reading for a while yet. But in terms of creating a complete world to escape into, it is pretty fantastic. Um, but if I could recommend one perhaps more on topic uh, quite, um, piece of reading, I would uh, point to a collection of papers that the um, Peterson Institute for International Economics has just published. And um, some of these papers were quite helpful for me in, in writing my brief. It's called Economic Policy for a Pandemic Age. And it really looks across international cooperation in a range of issues about health, trade and finance and vaccines. So uh, lots of useful material there. Brilliant. I think that's two great recommendations because certainly anything with bleak in the title seems barely apt at the moment to (laughs) the global outlook. Um, But we'll have to leave it there, unfortunately. But thank you both for a fascinating discussion. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or um, anywhere else. Um, But also please do give us a rating and review on whichever platform you've used to download this podcast. But for now, from Yanka Ertel, Anthony Dworkin and myself, Susie Dennison, it's time to say goodbye. The research for this podcast has been carried out by Lucy Halpenthal. The editor of this week's podcast has been Chris Eichberger.